This week on the Backtable Podcast. So they may not have transportation. This doesn't make them inherently a different kind of person. It makes them a person who shows up late to their appointments, but that's not a character issue or something that is inherently been put into them by their upbringing. So there is an inevitability that people are managing to retain, even if they're getting rid of the biological basis of it, because they're attributing the pathology instead of to biology, to history and to the person's upbringing. Hello, everyone. My name is Vishal Kumar, and I will be your guest host for today's Backtable podcast. First off, I would like to thank Aaron Fritz and the rest of the amazing Backtable podcast team for allowing us to use this platform to center the conversation around health equity. Second off, I identify as a father, husband, physician, and educator. I identify as an Asian Indian American immigrant with U.S. citizenship status. I also identify as a cisgender heterosexual male. My pronouns are he, him, and his. As some of you may know, I have the incredible privilege of serving as interventional radiology faculty as associate professor in the Department of Radiology at the University of California, San Francisco. While the views expressed during these conversations are mine and mine alone, I take comfort in knowing I am employed by an institution and community that supports and is committed to transformative justice and addressing healthcare inequities. Aaron has offered this space as a means to educate ourselves about healthcare disparities and use our incredible power and privilege as healthcare providers to begin to understand how to combat healthcare inequities in our daily practices. I wouldn't be where I am today without the help, guidance, sponsorship, and education of our next guest. I want to introduce Dr. Ayanna Bennett, who joins us as an educator, clinician, and honestly, a personal hero of mine as faculty here at UCSF and at San Francisco General Hospital. To demonstrate some of her incredible leadership, she was anointed as incident commander during San Francisco's COVID command center implementation as we battled the COVID-19 global pandemic. And she is also serving as chief health equity officer and director of the Office of Health Equity for the Department of Public Health in San Francisco General. Dr. Bennett, welcome to the Backtable podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michelle. If we may, Dr. Bennett, could you provide us with a little background or what you'd love the audience to know about yourself? Well, I come to this work through a couple of different pathways. I professionally have been, I think, working in equity my entire career. It's just nobody bothered to label it that when I started 20 years ago. We all either worked with communities in lots of need, or we worked in the suburbs and it was just a choice you made. I started a nonprofit in San Francisco when I got out of residency, knowing nothing. It was a little bit of a bold move. And that has been a real informative history for me in my equity work. I worked in community with mostly Black youth, living in a really not very well-resourced part of San Francisco. But that, but I even I came to that through, I think, a long history. My parents were both Black Panthers when they were in college. He kept that history alive for my entire life and childhood. And it really was a childhood where racism was just an accepted thing that existed. It existed not as a 
mysterious man who was going to oppress the world, but a really clearly laid out system of ideas and mechanisms that we had to manage to avoid or manipulate in some way. And it was just something I knew I would have to deal with and not be afraid of. And so I think the idea that racism is a factor that we can deal with, that it's something that is modifiable and we can get our hands around it, is something that I was just raised to believe. And I'm hoping I can convince other people of that. And we really work on moving things. Thank you for sharing. I want to echo or perhaps expand on some of the talking points you mentioned. First off, you discuss that your involvement in equity has been a lifelong journey and ongoing battle. And it seems in unique distinction to how we think about diversity education or diversity, equity, inclusion education amongst healthcare providers, where many think it can be achieved in a 30-minute session or a one-day or one-weekend online webinar course. This is truly lifelong work, transformative work with a growth mindset from day to day. Well, I think part of the problem is that people start so far from the reality they're going to have to live in in order to do this work successfully. So I did not start that far. So I, I don't claim to have struggled with this issue in the way that some of the people I work with have. But if you have been raised in a world where this issue was either non-existent or resolved or something that was never discussed, then you are starting really far behind. It's as if you have never heard of science and now you're going to try to go to medical school. It's just hard. But the solution to that is not to rail at the teacher that the topic doesn't exist or isn't important. The solution to that is you go back and study and try to catch up. And I think we in medicine have a really long history of being able to do that. So I'm hoping that all of my colleagues who are struggling realize that that just means they need to catch up and that they'll be willing to put in the work because it is work. You also mentioned that you grew up learning that racism was, in fact, a very real system and that something you could deal with. It feels to me, I remember when I was first being introduced to the depths of these concepts, that it can feel very overwhelming. How can a health provider begin to expect to combat racism if, as you say, there's so much to catch up, so much more to understand? I think the first thing is understanding it as Kamara Jones explains it as a, a system. I really like to think of it as a machine. In, in fact, a cotton gin, its intent is to separate anything you put into it into good and bad parts and deliver the good parts to one group, in this country, the white group, and deliver the bad parts to everybody else. Everything has more than one aspect. There are good and bad parts to absolutely everything. And so there's always a way in which they can be divided. Anything that we have access to can have better and worse access. So there are lots of ways in which people can learn to see it happening around them. It is happening around you. And once you develop that sight, it really is easy to have your understanding reinforced by reality again and again. So when you see how things are reported or how things are described or how your colleagues' assumptions influence how they work, you are being taught about racism all the time if you're paying attention. So if you accept that paradigm that there is something good or bad about what you're looking at, look at how those good and bad things are being distributed. Where is the resource going? Where's the money going? Where's your time and attention going? 
And then you will start to see that there are differences. One of the things I think has been really instructive in our department, especially I think the, the folks in primary care have been incredibly brave about this, is that when you look for disparities, they are there. So pick any, really almost any disease. And if you divide it by race, there's disparity there. Even further, though, if you look at the activities of your own staff, there are disparities there, too. So it's not do black, white and Asian people have different levels of blood pressure. They also have different levels of blood pressure control, and they also have different levels of contact with your system. And if you get down to the bottom of it, different levels of quality of contact with your system. Who gets a follow-up call? Who gets discharged from the hospital with or without their medicine? So there are things that we actually own in this system that we have control of. And if you go looking for them, you will find them. It just takes an act of bravery to find them because you're going to put yourself perhaps in conflict with people who would rather not know. You mentioned a shared hero of ours uh, that we both, I think, connected on through your anti-oppressive fellowship, Dr. Kamara P. Jones, American educator, physician, epidemiologist, San Francisco native, as I recently learned, and we are also lucky to have her as our current presidential chair. She has been nothing short of a global force in terms of addressing healthcare inequities for, as you said, decades. She is not new to this field. And I think most perhaps revolutionary during the COVID pandemic was her emphasis through the American Public Health Association, were that these health inequities, as you mentioned, are not in fact due to race, which hopefully we can agree is a sociopolitical construct as an, and an, in fact the byproduct of racism, but that the health inequities we see are due to the effects of racism on race in this country. Is that a fair assessment of Dr. Jones's sort of main point in terms of addressing race versus racism as we look at health inequities? I think so. And I think the reason she feels revolutionary to so many people, me included, is that so often this conversation devolves into a battle of emotional positions or egos, or if people take it as a personal label, I really think that that is a strategic move we have made as a society to be able to preserve racism, because if we're arguing about the quality of people's character, that's a question that's never going to be answered. Their behavior, that can actually be measured. Whether or not people are good or bad people leads us down this rabbit hole that never ends. So she refuses to let it go down there and keeps it on the level of something that we have to use our minds, our professional skills, and our power to work through. And I think that's a really powerful paradigm, that it's something we are supposed to repair. And the understanding of it as repairable, I think, can be revolutionary to many people. The inevitability of racism's outcomes is a really powerful part of its intellectual framework. Yeah, you say so many powerful things there. I hear the framework by which we view health inequities. It's so convenient to identify a patient or a community by race and say, they have a 30% or a 300% increased risk of this disease or this outcome. But it's much more challenging to say, well, the health inequities reveal an increased disparity, and that disparity is due to racism. And you had mentioned earlier the system versus the individual. Would you help me in sharing with our audience perhaps Dr. Kavara P. Jones's 
one of her most powerful allegories, that being the gardener's tale, in which she describes the various ways in which racism acts, as you've spoken to. The part of the gardener's tale that I think is really important is that it does for people who have the really social habit of attributing negatives in marginalized communities to the people in those communities, which I think is the habit that racism has asked you to have. And it helps you figure out that you're doing that. The reverse, though, is also true in that people have the tendency to attribute the problems they see on up on the other side as related to the system and society. So why are these patients late? Because we have bad traffic. Why are those patients late? Because they're irresponsible. So that inability to see individuals where they might be blamed and you don't want to blame them and system where you have the convenience of blaming individuals, that difference in how we attribute cause is, I think, something that people don't recognize they're doing. So in The Gardener's Tale, Dr. Jones talks about her first house and how they planted seeds and really looking at the same seeds in the rich, cared-for soil that she put in place and those that fell onto the rocky soil in her yard and how differently they did. So we've got abundant flowers in one area and we've got struggling stunted things in the other area. Those were the same seeds she bought. So there is no reason within the seed why those plants should look different. And the allegory is trying to tell us that there's no difference in the people why their lives and health should look different. There are differences in how they're cared for, the resources they have, the attention that they're given. And that is very true for our society, for our schools, and certainly for our patients. So if I could simplify the analogy even more, it's an um, insight into the concept of nature versus nurture. And we are asking or, or forcing ourselves to see if, as you say, is the seed different? Is it biologically or inherently different leading to the different outcome? Or is it the nurture? Is it the soil in which those seeds were planted? Is it the ways in which we viewed and watered or tended to that soil? And understanding that the soils themselves, the very nurtures, are different for those two communities of seeds. So the only, and she corrects this with other allegories, the only issue I would take with that allegory is that it is actually not the plants themselves that end up different. There are impacts, certainly, of the environment, but far bigger than the impacts of the environment are how that person is able to function. So they may not have transportation. This doesn't make them inherently a different kind of person. It makes them a person who shows up late to their appointments, but that's not a character issue or something that is inherently been put into them by their upbringing. So there is an inevitability that people are managing to retain, even if they're getting rid of the biological basis of it, because they're attributing the pathology instead of to biology to history and to the person's upbringing. There are not masses of pathological Black parents delivering damaged children into the world. There just aren't. There's an ethos where we feel like that must be what's happening. They just have bad soil, and it's not their fault. We honestly don't need to forgive people for how they turned out. We are continuing to cause them to be in the circumstances they are. 
So that same person planted somewhere else might very well thrive. And there's research showing that that's true. There are ages at which when people are moved out of segregated communities, where they are moved into higher resourced areas, where their outcomes completely change, there's a point at which you don't get that same benefit. And I'm not sure that that's because of the person or because we've got so many characteristics that now we can't see them differently. We can't allow them to change. But just there is not as much inherent in the person from the circumstances as a stunted plant makes you think. That's my only thing. I'm tired of being the stunted plant or the short guy at the fence. It is not the person necessarily. It is the circumstances. The fence is wrong. Right. And I fear that in education and in research, we see the stunted plant outcome and we say it is due to an inherent biological deficit or flaw in the seed rather than appreciating that the box in which that seed was planted was flawed, as you said. And that we could move the seed and it would recover. So that's the thing I mean. But the seed and the soil, it's the current soil, not just because it was bad. It's because you still haven't fixed it that that person's in that circumstance. There's recovery. So I want to take a moment to really explore some of the deeper concepts in Dr. Jones's analogy, because they have helped me frame my understanding of how racism operates in my day-to-day clinical practice, and also to teach and educate our next generation of providers on how to appreciate the, dare I say, altered soil of the patients that we see and how we need to truly deliver equitable care. Dr. Jones talks about three levels of racism as identified in this analogy. The first being institutional racism. She refers to as the differential access to goods, services, and opportunities by race. She talks about how it's structured, how it's codified. There's no identifiable perpetrator. And I think in some of her most poignant words, she describes institutional racism as inaction in the face of need. And to me, one of the most glaring culprits in medicine is the use of race-based calculators. And I know there was an incredible article in 2020 by Vyasa et al. that highlighted many of the utilizations of race-based calculations. But to me, it struck a chord where over and over and over, the use of race lowered the likelihood of access to care, whether it was transplantation, surgery, offering a vaginal birth attempt after a C-section simply based on race. I would just say that is its function. So it doesn't require that we have a nefarious actor for that to be a predictable outcome. That's the function of those assumptions. So the assumption about black muscle mass, that sounds totally ridiculous when you find out what they were talking about. But the function of that black people are animalistic was to deny them things. So when you use that assumption to create a calculator, that's going to be its outcome because it was meant to be exclusionary and therefore it functions that way no matter where you put it. Absolutely. So the use of race-based calculators is simply perpetuating oppression and racism and anti-Blackness within medicine. Yes. And we know that that's what those people thought not because they're aliens, but because their children are alive and some of them are still alive. It's not distant history. And so we know that their thoughts were not necessarily ones we would claim, but we don't take account of how much those thinking patterns influence the way they taught us to do medicine. Without question, science was co-opted by 
the racist ideology to justify the supposed biologic inferiority of black and brown and indigenous races. And I think, as you're saying, we see the ramifications of those thoughts today. Yeah. Dr. Jones also talks about personally mediated racism, which she defines as prejudice and discrimination. She differentiates prejudice being the differential assumptions people may have about an individual or community versus discrimination, which refers to the differential actions. She emphasizes that this personally mediated racism can be unintentional or intentional. It can also include commission versus omission. And she emphasizes the way this manifests with the lack of respect, suspicion towards our patients, devaluation of our patients and their time, as well as an overall theme of dehumanization. Yeah, I think that profound lack of curiosity that people have when they're making those assumptions is really shocking when you when they stop to think about it. So I, in my understanding of racism, I describe it as the answer to every question you don't have to bother asking. So why is that patient doing that? Why did they go there? What do they think? You don't even have to assume or ask because the answer is there. Racism will let you know why any group of people are doing what they're doing. But when we apply that to patients with the complexity of human life and the complexity of disease and the challenges of complexity of thought that they're asking from us, it just means we're completely unable to deliver what's needed of us because we can't get to that level of complexity through a lens of racism because it is a simplifier. That's its function. And when you start to see the effects of those day-to-day microaggressions, or as some of my colleagues say, murders in the moment, systemic day-to-day oppression, those actually start to affect the patients themselves. And Dr. Jones talks about the effects of internalized racism, or the third level, if you will, where it's an acceptance of the members of the stigmatized races or groups about the negative messages, about their own abilities or intrinsic worth. And we're seeing more and more evidence, dare I say, scientific research pointing to the biological effects of day-to-day and even generational discrimination and trauma with increased allostatic load, increased blood pressure, changes to prenatal outcomes, and just overall increased DNA stress. I think there's, if you look at what's happened to Black men in their middle years during COVID, I think there's lots of evidence that the burden of high blood pressure and heart disease and obesity that really is prevalent in that group of people is because they are such subjects and targets of that kind of grinding, constant oppression, just having to work harder for everything, having to swallow things and tell yourself to move on without reacting. We already know that that fight or flight response when not allowed to do either of those things is in itself a stress. You don't get to end that response because you're just holding it. You're not able to live it out. Well, that is the experience of being a minority in this country much of the time. It's not being able to respond to things and not being able to participate in things that you would otherwise feel you must. So that suppression of yourself is as much a part of this as anything else. I want to come back to a comment you made earlier. As two people who practice in San Francisco, I think there may be some misperceptions about a utopia with high rises and money flowing everywhere. Yet you mentioned 
You spent much of your career and currently work in under-resourced areas within San Francisco. Could you perhaps paint a picture for our audience who can't imagine a San Francisco with under-resourced or lack of funding? Well, there's a reason they can't imagine it, because they haven't seen it. And so there isn't anything to base their imagination on. And that's, in many ways, I think, very deliberate. When I was ending residency, I got pulled aside by fellow resident of mine, who is Mark Galley, who's now heading Health and Human Services for California. But one of the things he had done as his residency project was ask other residents if they knew where Bayview was, which is a predominantly historically Black neighborhood. And the number of them who did not was very high, higher than should be in a group of people who at some point in their training were going to be taking care of people from that neighborhood. And I think that that was very true of the neighborhood I grew up in in San Diego. It was certainly not mentioned in any kind of tourist document. Very few people who didn't live there recognized it as being there. That kind of ignoring that happens when segregation, and it still really is playing itself out, allows us to push everything that we are planning not to resource into one area so that we can conveniently not give them a grocery store, a bank, or a police station. All of those things are pushed into one area so that we can do the geographic work of laying out a city without having to try to do lots of other things to keep those people away from those resources. It's, a, it's really a matter of convenience. But that means that that neighborhood, which was deliberately created to under-resource, will never recover unless somebody deliberately resources it. So I'm in the Bayview community for 12 years working with primarily teenagers. And the ability for them to get an education, a job, a pathway to college, food for their families, any of the things that you would expect them to be able to have was just harder. It was just more difficult and sometimes not possible. So that kind of constant extra effort impacted their ability to think of other things, to visualize a future, to make plans, to care about some of the things I cared about in their health. They certainly cared about their health but they had their priorities and I had mine. So the ways in which these segregated communities that we all have continued to maintain are the heart of the oppression that we're seeing, I think is undervalued in our medical societies. They just don't, none of those people in, that, in those groups live there. Very few of them practice there. And so they don't have a great sense of what it is that goes into those differences in health that they see later. So I, I had a staff person, because I do this training a lot, who was 50 years old or so, a white woman from the Midwest, realistically had no idea that segregation had happened anywhere outside of Alabama or Mississippi. I was stunned by this, but she really did not know. But then the question is, what is the reason she has in her mind for why all those Black people live in those terrible houses on the Hill? Is it a choice? What is the force that's causing that to happen if it's not a social one that she knows about. So that kind of ignorance, it creates a void that I think many people in medicine have filled in with a bunch of racist nonsense. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the convenience of denial of the history and the lack of education makes it easy to think that we uh, not only can't fix it, we can't address it, but that we are not complicit. When in fact, I think the more you look around, as you say, once you have the appropriate lens and perspective by which to do 
anti-oppressive work, you start to see is everywhere, whether it's sexism, racism, anti-LGBTQ, there are always ways in which we can make our practices better and stronger for our patients and learners. You mentioned earlier how where you live in this country determines how long you will live, as well as the incorrect perceptions that many minority groups have chosen to live in disinvested, disenfranchised communities. I think one of the most powerful educational moments I had in my sort of faculty development was a Grand Rounds delivered by pediatrician Dr. Zaya Malawa here at UCSF, in which she described the origins of black poverty in San Francisco. And she talked about the effects of redlining, how we see the effects of redlining today on school evaluations and school performance. And it really helped, again, provide a framework for the social determinants of health. Many of the things you mentioned earlier as being critical in how they affect a patient's outcome or their, if I may, how it'll affect the seed's growth in that box. What would you love our listeners to appreciate about the social determinants of health? So I'm often disturbed by our understanding of history and not by how little of it some people seem to know. And that is disturbing. What I'm disturbed by is how finished people feel it is, as if it is a thing that began, happened, and ended. And that is not that often true of many things in history. History, things slowly peter out. They don't just disappear. And that is certainly true of the very powerful period where we segregated this country into areas geographically. So as Dr. Malala points out, the redlining map that said where you could or couldn't get a quality mortgage and you couldn't get one if there were any Black people or immigrants in the neighborhood, so that's where they all lived. That map looks very like the school quality map. And if you have followed COVID at all, it looks almost exactly like the COVID map. And that map looked like our heart disease map and our asthma hospitalizations map. The segregation on top of all the other things I think is one of the most powerful ways in which racism has continued to play out an impact on the health of people. So the ability of people to leave those under-resourced areas, to live in communities that have greater resources and uh, different viewed, viewed differently by the police force, all the things that come with not living in those places are things that are the social determinants of health. And the fact that all of those determinants tend to be concentrated together. So it's not that you don't have transportation, but you do have jobs and you do have a grocery store and you do have parks. The people who don't have one tend not to have any of them. And that reality is, I think, something that we have not really contended with. There's not this even stream of the social determinants where there's most people have some of them, a few people have everything and a few people have nothing. There are masses of people who have nothing. It is not a bell curve by any means. And those different groups don't see each other very much. So you, unless you physically make an effort to go there, there's no reason for you to understand that well. And so you're thinking of those social determinants as these discrete little needs that may or may not exist when really they are, as Kamara Jones points out, a complex system that has surrounded that person with deficits in every part of their life. Absolutely. I think the lack of appreciation leads to a lack of empathy, 
in patient care. And just to emphasize the issues of housing, transportation, lack of green space, food deserts, education, access to health insurance, access to care centers or trauma centers, as you said, tend to be clustered in very familiar and unfortunately predictable patterns as we look across the United States. I really um, appreciate how hard it is for people to get that experience. And one of the things I'm trying to do that you did not get as part of the fellowship, but one of the things I'm trying to bring, particularly to our clinical staff and leadership, is some expectation and resource for how to get out of the box. So we're hopefully going to start soon some neighborhood-led tours where people can sort of get a sense of what's happening outside the walls of the clinic or hospital where they either administrate or practice. And I think that's important partly because people just need to acknowledge how little they know. I would come to work and be very upset about a shooting that had happened and what was happening to the kids in the neighborhood and that school was closed and nobody in the building except the two black medical assistants and the black nurse over there would have any idea that any of that had happened. But every patient coming in that day knew it happened. They were all coming out of a traumatized community to get their shots or their medicine and literally almost no one they spoke to had any idea. So that disconnect, that is in itself in oppression. So the fact that your reality is of no importance to me and impacts me not at all, you just had a community vigil and I'm going to smile in your face and ask about how your dog is doing is not an experience that helps people. So the fact that people don't know about the communities they live in and sometimes don't even think they need to is damage that they're doing to their patients. And I think we don't acknowledge the little ways that we contribute to the oppression of people as even as they're coming into our door. And by definition, to me, that sounds like an example of devaluation of the other human, of the patient, which would be in line with a microaggression or personally mediated example of racism. Right. It is inaction in the face of need, basically. You talk about racism and its ability to create a dual reality, especially one in which for some the patient's reality and their existence, their lived experience does not matter, does not register. Is there another analogy of Dr. Kamara P. Jones you'd like to share with our listeners to help emphasize this duality? One of her analogies that I particularly like is the open-closed sign. So she talks about being inside of a restaurant and coming through an open sign and being able to sit and eat and enjoy the place and having the realization that Outside, there were people who were poor or homeless or any other thing that made them not able to come in for whom the sign really said closed. Whether or not we read it that way, it did. And their experience and even our imagination will tell us that that's true. You know that if that person walked into the restaurant and sat down, they would not be fed. And the reality of that situation is that the people in the restaurant aren't really aware of the fact that that sign says closed to those other people. It said open when they came in. They can see through the window that there are people who are still coming in and it looks like it's open. And the fact that it's closed is something that they may not in fact even believe. There's no reason for them to believe it if they're surrounded by people who came in through an open door. And that reality for the people outside looking in is that those people don't have any empathy for their position if they believe it exists. So the fact that we are in 
the place where the door was open and anybody who's practicing in medicine, you came through an open door, whether or not the door was very far open or whether or not it was very hard to get through as it was for many of us. It doesn't matter. You got through. There are plenty of people for whom all of the doors are closed. And I think we don't always acknowledge that for them, that they couldn't do the thing. And it matters. Like if you say, go get this medicine, and that isn't something that is an easy thing for them to do, you have set them up to fail. You haven't acknowledged what actually is going to go into that activity, which is a lot more than it would take for you to do. So I think we don't see those open, closed doors. And I think that analogy works for things far in a way from access, that it's for many, many things that are not just about getting in or not. It's about being able to have any knowledge of other people's experiences and what that means for your own behavior. For me, the open, closed door analogy really rings true when you're sitting in positions of power or advocacy and Dr. Jones asks us to look around and see who's not at the table, who has not been able to cross that barrier. And it reminds me of the lesson that privilege isn't always about having access or additional gains or benefits, but sometimes the lack of barriers to entry. I think it absolutely holds true. And many of our listeners are not only healthcare providers with power, but sit on committees, are board members. You have the opportunity to really shape policy, the values, and the ways in which medicine is practiced locally in your groups. I like that discussion of it as barriers, because even once you're in, there are ways in which the environment is not the same for you. So one of my concepts I try to talk to clinicians about is one that comes to us out of educational equity research, which is stereotype threat. So it, in education, it's the student who, when reminded of their race or reminded of the stereotypes about them, then cannot perform as well as they could before you did that. So when asked to write girl on the top of their math test, girls do worse on math. If you didn't tell them to do that, they wouldn't be surrounded by that stereotype and they did better. The same is true for Black children around some of those subjects, but it's true for patients too. So I know that you see me, or I think you might see me, as a terrible parent potentially, which is a label that gets thrown at Black people and immigrants and lots of other people. Well, then it's very hard for me to think through what you're telling me to do with my child. It's hard for me to tell you about the problems that I'm having because I don't know what that it will mean to you. Will it mean that you then label me with all the other negative things that I know about people say about my group? So it is not really a barrier that you can see. It may not even be a barrier that they're consciously aware of, but it does impact disclosure. It impacts compliance of phrase I hate. <laughs> it impacts people's success in using the information you've given them in order to improve their health. So you've given them something, but it does not have the value that it would have had if that had not been a barrier between you. You mentioned your emphasis on students. And as a fellow educator, I think you and I can both agree that we are so lucky to be surrounded by the incredible people that come through the training programs as residency fellows faculty. You yourself completed your medical doctorate at UCSF. You completed your pediatrics residency in 2004 and have been on faculty ever since. I know some of our listeners are in the middle of applying for residency. Please remember that UCSF really does stand for You Can Stay Forever. But Dr. Bennett, 
for those aspiring providers, if there was, I know there was a whole library of information we wish to bestow upon them, but if there was something, a unique way they could change their practice, their outlook starting tomorrow, what might that advice be? I would love for people to learn something about the community that they're practicing in. And I don't mean just numbers, but something of the flavor and history of the place and what it means to live there. Lots of us drive through, park in the parking lot, use our badge to get in and then come back out at the end of the day. Even if you have a sense of risk in the neighborhood, it's the neighborhood your patient walked through to get to you. So I would implore you to have some courage on that issue and go walk out, talk to your patients about what happened in their day and what is happening in their lives and the neighborhood, what's going on in the neighborhood right now so that you have some sense of responsibility as a participant in the community and not just a visitor. I really think that that kind of interaction is really helpful for patients in the whole realm of stereotype threat and their trust for you and other things, just being counter stereotypical. And the stereotype of you as a doctor is that you will not have an interest. Many, many people, myself included, have had incredibly negative interactions with medical professionals. I feel like I have personally saved multiple members of my family from tragic mismanagement by simply going and saying I'm a doctor and having their medical care completely be changed. And not because I did anything except be an observer who perhaps had more social power than they did. So being able to give people some sense that they can trust you, knowing that the assumption will be perhaps that they cannot. I think just acknowledging who you are in the situation and fixing some of the things that are fixable, like your ignorance and your perhaps complicity by being silent. All of those things, I think, are simple and that people can do them. They just have to have some will. Absolutely. As a physician and educator and provider at San Francisco General Hospital alongside yourself, I recognize that we work within a safety net hospital and how critical that is for our community members. And I can't help but think as we discuss Dr. Jones's work, how the box with the seeds that just didn't grow well because of the soil they were planted in reminds me of the outcomes and some of the disparities we see working at San Francisco General, which are not mirrored when we look at our tertiary care, fertile soil institutions. Yeah. Well, I, I also think we need to at least look at the role in which our institution plays in maintaining the soil. Are we contributing to the community? Are there pipeline programs in which people can work in your institution? I like to say that if you're worried about your patient not having a job, it's because your place didn't hire them worried about them being poor. It's because you didn't buy anything from them. So we are parts of powerful parts of the community. Your institution may exist in that community, but also not be a participant, just like I'm saying many of our providers are not. So there are things that you can advocate that have more than a patient-by-patient -patient impact. So being able to do that work where you actually try to do something about the soil not just commiserate with the person in front of you about how terrible it is. I think that's actually work that is part of the care of a community that needs that kind of advocacy. It is not going to help everybody for you to just be nicer or to get them their quality of care that they were otherwise not getting. And trust me, they were not all getting it. There's also more that you need to do when you're in a community that is itself not being 
treated fairly. So your patient is sick and their community is sick. You really have to treat both. Well, Dr. Bennett, I thank you so much for your time and willingness to engage and educate. I know your anti-oppressive fellowship has really helped shape my practice and my day-to-day perspective. I'd like to think it's helped me go from a reactive, complicit leader to a much more proactive, mindful one. And I hope that I can begin to see the various forms of oppression before they happen and affect our patients in real time, even though I do acknowledge all of the oppression occurring outside of the walls of our hospital. Thank you all for listening. We hope you've enjoyed today's discussion. And if you're interested, look forward to more conversations on the Back Table podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Bennett. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Zubi Syed, Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.